Recovery Elevator, episode 426. You know, there's the old set phrase, you change when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. And it, 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 I was so stuck. Like, how do I get out of here? If I move, everything's going to, I don't want to rock the boat or the entire ocean's going to catch on fire. Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo, yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo, yo. Wiki, wiki. Three, Mix four, down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. Guys in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki. Mix down. There we go. Three, four. Wiki, wiki. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I am so excited to be here with you today. Listeners, on today's episode, we have Jeffrey. He's 35 years old from Monument, Colorado, and took his last drink on July 23rd, 2022. Great job, Jeffrey. This episode drops in the middle of our Recovery Elevator sober travel trip to Costa Rica. And if you're on this trip and you're listening, hell yeah, I'm so glad to be traveling with you sans the booze. Listeners, registration is now open for our flagship annual retreat held in Bozeman, Montana, this upcoming August 9th through the 13th. This event, held in the pristine forests of Big Sky Country, is all about having fun, connecting, and learning the tools needed to be successful on your alcohol-free journey. This year, we are doing a sunset hike, touring a dairy farm, we've got a lakeside barbecue plan, some breathwork, and recovery workshops. We also have former number one overall NFL draft pick Ryan Leaf speaking at this event. And Ryan is a current ESPN broadcaster and a huge recovery advocate. I'm a big fan of Ryan's. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash Bozeman for more info. And the link is in the show notes as well. Thank you, Robin. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe RE chat hosts. You guys do an amazing job. Okay, let's get started. I went to an AA meeting a couple weeks ago and someone hit a milestone of 40 years. My goodness, how amazing is that? The host of the meeting asked the gentleman to share his experience and how he achieved 40 years alcohol-free. Now this gentleman, let's call him Randall, can be long-winded, but what he said was short, concise, and clearly it's stuck with me since I'm covering it here. He said, getting one day of sobriety is harder than getting two. Getting two days is harder than a week. A week is harder than a month. Getting a month away from alcohol is harder than a year. A year away from alcohol is harder than 10. And 10 years away from alcohol is harder than 40. First off, congrats, Randall, on 40 years of sobriety. I'm pushing eight years. Randall, you're a legend. I remember Randall being at one of the first AA meetings I ever attended. I think it was late 2012 or early 2013. It was in a metal shop. I could smell the grease. The bright fluorescent lighting exacerbated the redness in my cheeks from a night of drinking before, and my anxiety spiked with each beat of my heart. It was palpable. I remember seeing Randall across the table, his pants held up by suspenders, and I said to myself, if he can do it, then so can I. And listeners, if I can do it, then so can you. And if you can do it, so can your brother, your sister, mother, father, son, daughter, friend, neighbor, or whoever in your close circle may be struggling with alcohol. In terms of sobriety or the quitting drinking process, you don't have to wait years for it to get easier. As Randall said, once you get that first night alcohol free, then you know it can be done. It gets easier. 
The conscious and the unconscious know it can be done. The nervous system realizes it can be done. The bigger you realizes it can be done. This pathway gets easier. It will naturally get easier. It will naturally soften with the more time away from alcohol you have and the more life experience you get. But perhaps the biggest reason why it gets easier is a change in perception, more of where we are going. The further I get away from my last drink, the more I see how sick I was. And I say that with unequivocal passion for myself. The further I get away from my last drink, I also realize how far I have to go. And my head doesn't droop when I say that. But where do I have to go? When we quit drinking, are we going somewhere? Do we follow a certain sequence of steps or guidelines to arrive at a certain location? Maybe the Mecca of sobriety? So I love model trains as well as big trains. In fact, I got a model train set going around my entire office. It's almost 90 feet of track, tunnels through the wall and all that stuff. There's a YouTube channel called Downey Live where a guy named Michael documents some of the most scenic railways in the world. In the episodes I've seen, without fail, he drops a major life truth, which goes something like this. He says, you know, the cool part about doing this channel is the fact that where this train is headed is not the point. It's the journey that I care about. It's the journey that I want to share with you. Now, I haven't seen all of his videos, but he poetically throws this out into the videos that I've seen in such a beautiful way. In one of his videos, he says something to the tune of, once you realize it's the journey and not the destination, everything seems to calm down. There's a link in the show notes if you want to see the scenic Amtrak train travel from Denver, Colorado to the Winter Park Ski Resort. I think one of the greatest gifts that alcohol has taught me and still teaches me daily, thank you, is that only the journey matters. In fact, there is no destination. Science shows that more dopamine is released when we are on the journey opposed to when we arrive. Dopamine is released when we take the first step of action towards a goal. That's a big one right there. Now back to Randall and his 40 years of sobriety. I can pretty much guarantee you, in order to hit 40 years alcohol-free, Randall has learned this lesson. And once this life truth is embodied, things get easier. Life gets easier. Sobriety gets easier. Honestly, I'm afraid to go back and listen to my first 50 episodes of the RE podcast. I've done it before in the past, and I cringe. Now, I do believe what Paul of eight years ago said, and I love that guy, but I don't recognize much of him anymore. I've changed, and we should change. Many of my viewpoints have changed as they should. Those first 50 episodes, I was going somewhere to a certain destination that didn't really exist. Today, as I type this while listening to Native American flute music on Spotify, I recognize the point of this episode comes from focusing on each keystroke with each word typed and then each word read into the microphone. So I'm going to type a word slowly, S-E-T-T-L-E, -T -T and then read it out loud, settle. Things get easier as you settle into sobriety, as you realize that the journey is the most important part. Even the hard times of the journey are something to be thankful for. As we embrace the day, the hour, the minute, as opposed to living in the future via the mind, things get easier. When we realize that hard days are a part of life and that hard days are part of an alcohol-free life, things get easier. With each conscious breath we take, things get easier. 
Now, listeners, if you're struggling, you're on day one or day zero, my message to you is this journey will get easier. Just keep trying. Don't quit quitting and keep showing up. Keep listening. However, things get easier. That's with an asterisk. Things will get easier if you embrace the journey and you don't do this alone. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this topic. I want to say congratulations again to Randall on 40 years alcohol-free. It is possible. I'm telling that to you guys and myself. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Jeffrey. How many times have you felt like you can't make positive changes in your life if you aren't feeling 100%? I know that for me, I don't always feel like I'm at my best. I've learned through therapy, though, that not feeling my best does not equal to not feeling empowered. I can accept my emotional wobbles and still feel empowered to take care of myself and my mental health. We have agency. We can get to the point where we trust ourselves enough to move forward in the right direction. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. BetterHelp is convenient and flexible. Also, it's entirely online. You can fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional cost. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit BetterHelp.com Elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Jeffrey. Jeffrey, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Um, I'm in a very transitional place in life. A lot of positive things happening for me. So feeling it today, feeling gratitude. That's good. Some of that stuff is exciting. Some of it's nerve wracking, but nice job embracing it. Just embracing things is, is good. Jeffrey, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? I have been sober since July 23rd, 2022. So just coming up on eight, eight months here in about a week. Nice job. Eight months soberversary coming up. How, uh, how you feeling? You know, I feel it's so clear. There's still a lot of question marks, you know, it's living in sobriety is everything's a, a question mark, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be negative anymore. So I'm feeling pretty good. Clear. I like it, man. Nice job. Eight months is eight months is good. That's real. I mean, like anything is good, but that's, that's a good chunk of time. So nice work, dude. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't. There was a long time I didn't have eight minutes. So eight months, I'll take it. Amen to that. Uh, before we get into your story, Jeffrey, can you let the listeners know a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do for a living, age, family, anything like that? And then most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Um, I am 35. I for a, I do apartment maintenance for a living. Um, I was born in uh, Illinois, but I've been in Colorado since I was maybe six. So Colorado is home to me. I am, um, you know, I live alone with my min pin and two cats. And uh, for fun, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of people say I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, I, I play a lot of Magic the Gathering, trying to get back into uh, reading. And it's, you know, a lot of new experience and new opportunities, but I'm still still kind of learning the fun thing. Nice. I think that's I think that's common. What uh, what have you been reading for fun? Is there anything that's caught your attention lately? You know, so I'm kind of just I've had good intentions with reading. I'll get a comic book in every now and then. But uh, right now, a lot of people have been talking about the body keeps the score that's oh. on my to do list. 
Um, but my next big read is um, The Myth of Normal. I want to say Eckhart Tolle, uh, but I, that's my next big hold on the library I, I'm excited for. I'm writing that down. I like the name. Very cool. And yeah, a lot of uh, mental, you know, anything, any recovery books, um, anything, uh, mental health, really, I think more is, is my focus, mental health and, and inner healing, self-love is kind of the vein I'm trying to to go in. But like I said, I'm just, just kind of getting started getting back into reading. Those books are good. I went through probably, <laughs> I just got the, the Libby app last, which is like the library app and listeners. Oh, yeah, I love Libby. Yeah, listeners, if you haven't heard of Libby, check it out because I had subscribed to Audible and then I switched to Libby and I need I still need to cancel my Audible. I'm just over there paying money and building credits, but it's like a free library app. Anyway, check it out. But I went through probably last fall, 10 self like self-help, quote unquote, self-help style books. And uh, now I'm switching it up. I'm throwing some like fun fiction in there every once in a while. But but it, I like those. I like that kind of self-improvement type of stuff i think a lot of them are saying the same sort of thing but it's just it's continual like affirmations and and a, like a, a little dose of guidance in the way that i want to live my life so anyway i feel you on that yeah i love the experiential ones um there's one called on fire by a guy john o'leary um he le- le- legitimately got caught on fire as a small child um had major medical issues over it and uh it kind of got part way through it and i'm working on finishing it but it's just you know his story of how he learned to love life again and and be vibrant through through tough experiences i'm writing that one down too on fire but yeah, i got a whole list <laughs> very cool all right well we don't want to burn up our hour well i don't know maybe we do recovery elevator this is the book hour of talking about books uh just kidding let's let's do what we came here to do jeffrey eight months coming up on eight months where did uh where did this journey start let's talk about your journey with alcohol kick us off and we'll let's just walk that road together brother all right so um you know my journey with alcohol has been such a a stretch of peaks and valleys I guess I'll just kind of start from the beginning at about, you know, high school, about 15 years old, I started drinking and I don't think I was ever really a normal drinker. Uh, I just didn't know it for a long time. I remember, you know, being in school, uh, my very first drink was very memorable. Um, I was, I was home alone, 15 years old, and I hijacked a shot of Jack, his Jack, uh, my stepfather's Jack Daniels. Um, and I drank it out of like old used candle holder off of my sister's table from the living area downstairs. The candle was all burned away, but it was all dirty and there was old wax in there. And I put some Jack Daniels in there and drank it. And I felt so grown up and cool. And, you know, it was just the one shot, but, um, that was the first, first one I, I ever remember. And I was kind of a loner. And I, I really just got linked in with my sister's social network as teenagers. And some of the friends I met through there got, you know, would invite me to parties. And there was a lot of alcohol available. We were all underage. But, um, you know, it wasn't like, hey, cool, let's have a, a couple of Zimas. It was like, hey, let's put, you know, a bottle of Crown Royal and, and two cases of beer to the face. And so, I mean, I started... I didn't have a warm-up phase. I started, I was drinking to drink. Um, you know, it was a, I remember I had a, a friend, um, older, older 
graduated um so he could buy it for us and we're like pawning dvds to get enough money for a couple 40s every friday drinking them in a field behind somebody's house and then i'm stumbling home you know four miles drunk as heck at two o'clock in the morning and it just yeah i just kind of that's that's how i lived it was never it was you know never a normal pattern of and I think that's maybe common, you know, in rebellious teenage years. We're not all out there sipping a Merlot. But, you know, there was some mild trouble with the law that I, you know, didn't really turn into anything. But I ended up going to jo- the Job Corps program when I was 20. So it was, you know, uh, regulated, isolated out. And I was in Montana, actually, about 70 miles north of Missoula. Okay. That's out there. Yeah. And so, you know, we were not part of the program was we were not allowed to drink. So I spent about a year out there, except for, you know, quick holiday vacations back home for the weekend, not drinking. And it wasn't a problem, but I came back and I was 21 and I got into, you know, my career and I was a semi-normal drinker, but, it, you know, it was a mostly nightly thing. It was, It still wasn't. It was never experimental or social it was this is something i kind of lean on still didn't have a lot a lot of social activity so uh, you know alcohol was kind of my friend you know kind of my best friend even then and i i got i ended up getting um, it still wasn't problematic but it was very very regular and i ended up getting involved in a very religious organization and that kind of became a big part of my life but drinking was still you know, pretty aggressive and kind of emotionally problematic more than anything. And so eventually I I ended up quitting for, you know, a good year, just over a year, maybe. Uh, And that was more, I still wasn't in the recovery mindset. I didn't view it as a, as a problem for myself. It was a spiritual issue. You know, I was drinking beyond what my spiritual values at the time were. And it was something that had to go out of my life for that reason. I want to pause just for one one second, yeah. and I've got this written down of this this year of quitting, you know, for spiritual reasons. Just a, a quick question: when you were when you were in Job Corps for you were gone for that, you said that was about a year. Yeah, about uh, nine ten months probably. Okay. And you mentioned that you that you guys weren't allowed to drink in that program, and I'm, I was just I was wondering during that time was there you know, you're from 15 to about 20, you know, you, you said it, it it resonated with me that it wasn't like a fun social thing necessarily. I mean, maybe it was fun, but it was kind of hardcore, like firing for effect sort of drinking. And then to go into this program where for, you know, 10 ish months, you're you're not allowed to drink. Did you have any feelings about not being able to drink? Did that program keep you busy enough? Or was there, was there any struggles with the not drinking while you were in that program? Honestly, no. Um, you know, I probably dealt with some more initial anxiety. It hadn't, it hadn't become as much of a need to function. Okay. You know, there was still somewhat of a social, a social element to it, or just like, I, I would, I think before I went to job Corps, it was still something that I was, I was doing too much of, but I was still doing it for fun for the purposes of fun. Okay. Um, so there wasn't, it wasn't as much of a loss. It was more, more just like, a, oh, I can't go have fun the way I want to. We were also out in the middle of nowhere. So, I mean, the closest town was 
a good half hour drive and it was 300 people. So it's not like alcohol was available or anything. And they, they did keep us busy out there. Um, there was a lot of activity. So at that point, no, it wasn't, it hadn't really become something that I felt as a loss. Okay. That's, I think that's a good observation and that shows, and I'm sure we'll get to it in your story, but that shows kind of the, the progression. Like even if we have some heavy usage early in our drinking career, it's might not necessarily be set into the point where it's, it's the same sort of need. It does. I don't know. It, it just doesn't have necessarily have the same grip or it's, it's just different. That's not to say that that's better or worse. I don't think we need to quantify it that way, but just, okay. That's. I think alcohol kind of evolved for me over my drinking career from a comfy blanket or from a comfy pillow to a security blanket. And at that stage it was still just a pillow. Okay. I like that. I've, I've just hearing you describe that reminds me of like when I went to the military, cause I was drinking quite a bit that last summer before I joined the air force. And, and it was kind of the same thing. Like when I first joined, I mean, I was so busy with, with, I mean, they had us working and training and it was a new place and a new environment and I didn't have access. And I don't know, it, it didn't really bother me either. It was, I mean, it was something that I would have liked to have done, but it, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't the same feeling as like when I quit, it, that was incredibly hard. I'll tell, I'll tell you for sure. The second time, once it was for spiritual reasons and it was more intentional. Yeah. Let's go to that. Um, that, so that was, that was definitely felt as more, I felt that as more of a loss because it was, you know, at that point it was something that I identified as a, a problem for what I was trying to do in life. And so I, I think I was more conscious of the fact that it was something that I wanted to do and had to use self-control. You know, it's not, job core regulating that I'm not allowed to. It, here's this thing that's readily available. I could easily choose to do at any time and I want to do it, but I, you know, I was still in the shouldn't mentality instead of wanting to not do it. How old were you at this, at this point? That was early twenties. I was probably 23, 24. And it was still manageable. It's still something, you know, it was still something I could choose to do at that point and be okay with it, you know, and then after a, a year or so, I had kind of convinced myself that I, you know, yeah, I can, I used to like good craft beers. I have lots of friends that are, you know, brew beer and are into the culture of it. And I, I've had enough of a break. I can, I can start this normal drinking again, which was funny because the very first sip of the very first beer I had, I immediately had this sub, this internal understanding that that was not the case. And we were back, uh, but it, it was regulated somewhat healthily for a while. You know, it wasn't chug a lug until I can get to sleep. It was, I can enjoy a few, maybe a few too many, but, um, Within, I could, I could still keep it enough to look normal to other people mm -hmm. or even to myself. I think more than anything, I think I was still trying to fool myself more than the rest of the world, but. Yeah. What that's, that was like, as you're describing that, that's kind of my question is what's, what was that internal dialogue as you, as you, as you went back out, were you, as you're trying to convince yourself, okay, this is normal. I'm, I can do this. It's fine. Like. Were you believing that? Did you feel some inner inner conflict? How did how was that? How did that play out internally? So I guess at that stage it was 
you know, and so remember, this was a lot of the motivation behind this was was still very spiritual, um, scriptural. So, you know, my problem, I was kind of viewing what was healthy drinking through a different lens than I do now. And so my internal conflict was more like, do I have a, a, a longing for alcohol? Um, and I thought that I had I thought that was the problem. It wasn't a need yet. It was like this internal longing. So, you know, as soon as I had that first drink, I was like, yep, it's still there. This is this is still the fire, you know, the fuel that feeds my passion. But I still didn't have I don't know if this answers your question, but I still didn't have I still didn't view it as as a problem then. I was like, yes, I love this every bit as much and I'm going to do it just as often as I did before, but I'm going to have a little more self-control with it now. Um, I don't know. It's kind of a hard feeling to describe. It still felt like juggling, but I thought I could juggle it, I guess. That's the best way I can describe it. I gotcha. Well, so we're mid-20s. We got about uh, a year for spiritual reasons. Go back out. And you're at this point where you're, you feel like it's managed, like you're managing it, but there's a little, maybe a little bit of tension in your relationship with it. Let's, let's keep going forward. So like that continued on probably for another good year or so. Um, we're still not problem phase, but I had a lot of mental health issues that, that tied into what would make it a problem. Um, you know, self-harm has been a struggle for me um over the years and like i i I remember you know some some of the problem behavior was just i would just kind of be a jerk a little bit but then like i remember being over at a friend's house and drinking entirely too much and you know cutting myself on the arms while you know arguing with the guy with his steak knives so that these were kind of isolated incidents back then. And I could kind of blame it on just the, you know, the mental health outbursts, not recognizing that alcohol was massively exacerbating these problems. And then, you know, eventually it's I kind of want to skip ahead to, to more of the recent chapter when it was truly more identifiable as a problem. Um, So that continued for a while. And I, I eventually you know, left the spiritual life and and the organization and started drinking again. Um, I think I, so I had had another almost year for the same reasons um, of being sober. And when I left that, I I went back to normal drinking for a long time and, you know, work was going well. I was drinking after work weekends. I was going out to the bar with my friends uh, but it was all still very normal. You know, I wasn't having a ton of these crazy freak out mental moments, but, you know, I would drink myself to the point of like, uh, I'm sitting in the bathroom alone at midnight, intentionally listening to the saddest songs I know and just crying in the mirror. And then I was working at a hotel downtown and I started, you know, having to like having a, a beer before work to just kind of calm my nerves and it kind of became a pattern and to the point of like, I'm having too many beers before work. And it was a very alcohol induced culture within that workplace. You know, there was a restaurant inside the hotel and, you know, I'd come in on Sundays and it was shot Sundays with all of the, the waiters and the bartenders and everything. And they would have a shot of gin lined up for me 
at the beginning of my shift because they knew that was what I liked. So at 3.30 in the afternoon, I'm walking into work. I go into the restaurant to check the refrigeration temperatures. And go, oh, Jeffrey's here. Shot Sunday. Everybody runs into the back. We all clink. We all, you know, that was just kind of the culture in that job. And then I met, so I met my wife there. And I ended up um, leaving that job and starting um, a new job in the apartment industry. And by then I had kind of realized like, Hey, maybe having a few drinks before work is, is a problem. Mm-hmm. So I started getting a little healthier with, you know, I want to live a better life. Like this is kind of when I, I started wanting to shift things, you know, um, drinking in the middle of the weekdays, maybe not something we're going to do anymore, but I was still drinking, you know, every night after work, every weekend, every social event had to be around alcohol. And things were really functional for a good couple years. And my drinking just slowly ramped up. And, you know, mid, I don't know, 2019, it was it, it was a real problem at this point of how how much alcohol was having an effect on my physical and mental health. And, you know, just shaky anxiety constantly through the day. Um, so it's like five o'clock, you know, and I lived on site where I worked doing apartment maintenance and it became, you know, literally five Oh one walking in the door, we're chugging a beer just to, just to kill the anxiety to feel okay a little bit. And then pretty much just drinking beer through into the night. And I, I was not, I wasn't as engaged with my family as I should have been, um, yeah, I would do, a lot of times I'm just sitting in the bedroom watching YouTube, drinking beer most of the night. Uh, and then it and then it just progressively got a little worse to where, you know, event one day my anxiety was so bad that I came in on my lunch break and decided, like, I need something to stop this anxiety and this shaking. So, you know, we go and we hit the open can from last night that's still on the bedside table. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was there was a lot of anxiety in that. Is somebody going to smell it on me? Is this going to affect my, like, what if I get hurt? And I have to, you know, uh, and that just got worse and worse until the point, you know, it really peaked. I was so bad by the end. I mean, it was over two years of just literal 24 seven, you know, people talk about wait that waking up at three o'clock in the morning, Mm-hmm. and having the shakes and the anxiety and everything and feeling like you're going to have a heart attack and how difficult that was. And that was when I had my first drink for the day, yeah. 3 a.m. to get back to sleep. And it was just, I never had to drive. And it was, I mean, three o'clock in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. And never, I didn't have 0.0 alcohol content for blood alcohol content for two and a half, maybe three years, you know, before. <laughs> get myself in trouble on this one. I mean, I was a couple in before I got to work. Yeah. Jeffrey, there's something that's sticking out to me as you're telling story. And I just want to try to encapsulate like my observation. It, it seems like from, to me, from early on that you've had this, that you've had this awareness, like even, even from those teenage years, like you've had this awareness that this is holy shit, like maybe this was not super healthy or you've, you've had this kind of desire to, to manage or to quit or, or, or like to be able to function. And even with these 
stints, you know, for spiritual reasons or for work reasons, you know, have you've had these stints of sobriety and always this desire to to manage and to you've put you've put in effort to to normalize and and to regulate and there's uh, I am not a like a a big book of AA <laughs> philosopher by any stretch but there's there's a phrase in the in the big book that talks about how there's nothing you know and I don't I I use the term alcoholic I don't think that's mandatory but anyway there's somebody who's struggling with drinking there's nothing they want more than to be able to to drink normally and we'll go to the ends of the earth you know we'll kill ourselves trying to do that and I just want to acknowledge like your awareness that you've wanted that you that you've wanted to make this change and I just want to highlight that like that struggle because dude I I feel you and it's so freaking exhausting to just to see that we want to make a shift and and maybe not be able to do it and it can be so demoralizing you know you mentioned having some like mental health struggles as well and I just again I just want to acknowledge that that like man this stuff feels that and I'm just that's I'm sorry that you that you and so many of our listeners and like that me that like that stuff is is really tough and I just I just want to make sure I don't know I just felt compelled to to tell you that like like I hear you dude and I I know that feeling of like you know you mentioned your first your first time like coming home at I, th- I think you said you came home at lunch and you're like, all right, let me hit this. You know, there's a little bit on the counter. And then like having that worry, like, oh, okay, shit. Like, how's the rest of my day going to go? And then somehow that like you get so freaked out the first time, but then somehow that just becomes a part of the normal day. And for the next couple of years, that's, that's how you operated. I had, man, I, I like, I just feel your story because I had similar things happen. I remember I had a, a a classmate of mine pass away and that day I had, I'm like, I don't know how to deal with this, a beer. I got to go. I got to, you know, I've got an obligation that night and I'm stressed out and freaking out. And it, it wasn't necessarily an everyday thing, but like somehow it became normalized and it was, it was more than never. That's, you know, and, and before that's something that was so far off from like my moral values and was, I'm not that type of guy. I'm not that person. And then somehow it just becomes acceptable and that what that does to us internally, it just, it sucks. It wrecks us. Oh, it beats you down. I mean, it, it takes away a, a, a core of your soul. Yeah. I mean, if you'd have shown, if you'd have shown a, the image of that guy to that kid about to take that shot of Jack Daniels out of a candle holder, I don't think he would have taken it. Hey, this is what you're going to look like in 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. I just, man, I just want to acknowledge that. Like I, like as you're describing this stuff, I like, I can feel that pain. And I just know that when we're in that, it just, it doesn't feel good. And I, and, and I'm sure we've got some listeners right now who, who maybe are, are right there. They're right there today. And you're listening to a couple dudes who got, who've got some sobriety between us, you know, we've, we've got, we've got some time and, and we're going to get to the hope part. But if you're in that right now, I just, I want to acknowledge that, that I feel you too, listener. And, and Jeffrey knows what you're going through and uh, you're not alone, but, the, but there is, you know, there is another way and we'll, uh, we'll get to that in your story. But yeah, sorry. That was- kind of a long-winded intervention on on my part but man i just 
as you're describing that, that couple years of, of just constant, you know, having that first drink at 3 a.m. Like I just, man, I feel you. I really feel you. You know, and that was, I think that was the scariest part of what kept me in there. I didn't want to live like that, but I don't, I, there was so much fear about being able to break out of that or what the consequences of trying to break out of that could be. And somehow this just living like that floated along for X amount of years. And it's like, it, it almost became this like twisted, if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the old set phrase, you change when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. And it, it, it I was so stuck. Like, how do I get out of here? If I move, everything's gonna, I don't want to rock the boat or the entire ocean's going to catch on fire. You know, it was a terrible stuck place to be. And that was, I think some of the hardest part of it. Yeah. That fear of the unknown is sometimes greater than the fear of the known. And yeah. What if I fail? What if, what if I try and it doesn't work? Maybe if I, if I don't try, there's still that hope that maybe someday it could change. But if, but if I don't try and don't fail, then, then there, then that, then that hope still, you know, lives out there, but it's, uh, I just want to throw this out there. Like it's not, it's not failing. It's, I mean, even if there's a misstep or, or a slip, it's we're falling forward and that's, and that's growth. But, but we just, we, I think we get that idea stuck in our head that it's, that it's failure. And if I try to quit and there's a slip or a relapse or field research, whatever term you want to use, Oh shit, that's it. That's it. I'm done forever. No, we can keep going, but, but it doesn't feel that way. So let's, Let's keep let's keep going forward. You've got a, a couple years of of daily pretty pretty significant use. Um, let's get to the the turning point. Walk us up to that. I mean, that whole chunk of years was a massive turning point. It was, you know, like we talk about the aha moment. I didn't have there was too many. I mean, I knew there was this this was no way to live for a long time. You know, my marriage was falling apart. My family was falling apart. My self-esteem was completely non-existent. I, I mean, I was just, uh, I was a, a nightmare to live with. Uh, you know, eventually, you know, my wife left and I don't, I don't fault her, you know, to, I'm just drinking into the night, just screaming about the government and breaking stuff and i just it was i mean we were living in hell and even after um you know i'm living alone you know my wife's gone my kids are gone i have nothing and nothing but just terrible enemy that disguises my best friend um i was just uh i mean i was legitimately on a death spiral had i not gotten sober i i don't know that i'd be on this chat with you today realistically yeah i was hurting myself again i was getting my my family's calling in wellness checks there's cops knocking at my door at 5 30 at night still daylight and i'm passed out on the floor of the living room it, it was it was no place to be uh, you know and then the hope came by giving, I mean, just giving up. So I didn't do it of my own free will. I wanted to, I 
struggled with, um, I looked into rehab for uh, two years before I, I ended up going. Um, and I was afraid again, back, I was afraid of what was going to happen. If I, I'm going to put myself out there and, and my employer's going to find out and I'm going to lose my job or I'm not going to have money to pay my bills because I'm going to be gone and, and not working. And, and what's my family going to do? And, you know, just, I, I let these things be obstacles and, uh, it was really just an excuse, I think. In in turn, I didn't, I didn't even recognize that it was an excuse at the time. I would tell myself every every week, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop on the weekend because I can, you know, detox, home detox. On, I don't want to be skitzing and shaking and freaking out at work. Um, I'm gonna do this over the course of the weekend, so I'll be halfway normal by Monday. And then, sure enough, Friday. 3 a.m. rolls around and it's like, well, I guess we're doing this next weekend. But one Saturday morning, um, there's a knock at my door and I two things about me, the way I was living at the time. I don't answer my door if I don't know you're coming. And I also didn't lock my door because I didn't care. And the people that, you know, knew me, which was very few people at the time, I was very isolated, knew that. So knock, 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 nine o'clock in the morning. I didn't do anything because I wasn't expecting anybody's second knock. And then the door opens and in walks my mom, my sister, and my brother-in-law with a, a girl I don't know, um, who was, I guess, an in, uh, turned out to be an interventionist. So my family was so terrified for me and my well-being that they set everything up for me. They had found me a rehab facility, which turned out to be very close to my house, they had set up FMLA with my job. They had found this um, an amazing organization in Denver um, called Positive Recovery, uh, and they they foster um, animals uh, for people in these kind of situations. So they fostered my two cats and my dog uh, while I could go to treatment because that's a big obstacle for a lot of people. What's going to happen to my pets? Mm-hmm. Uh, so everything was taken care of and people talk about surrender. Like at that point, I'm just like, okay, if my job knows something is up. They're going to be paying attention to me on Monday. Anyway, everything's already set up like F it. Let's just do this. So I went and, and it changed everything. I mean, that was, that was July 23rd of last year. That was I, my, I had my very last drink during my intervention. <laughs> <laughs> And the intervention, I chugged the last of the can and the interventionist looked at me and she said, congratulations, you just had your last beer ever. And at the time, there was a little bit of bitterness. I was like, "You, I want this to be my last beer ever. But it was. And it's like, thank God for that. You know, yeah. I never thought I'd be here eight months later, but that was that was the turning point. I mean, that was the long winded two year turning point. But that's where it all culminated. Man, I'm, I'm so happy that, that you've got those people in your life. I mean, those might feel like drastic steps, but what, you know, it maybe didn't feel like a blessing in the moment, but to have those people come in and, and, and just advocate for you. I'm, I'm really, really happy that, that you've got them, Jeffrey. Uh, and that positive recovery, I've never heard of such a thing, but yeah, you're right. That, that could be such a barrier. I just talked to, uh, I just talked to a person the other day who's, who's, you know, looking at getting some help. And that was, you know, when we 
when I was describing what my treatment experience was like, you know, this person was like, I, you know, I, I've got all these obligations and commitments and that's, that can be a huge barrier and, you know, pets or family. So, and what a blessing that they, that they stepped in like that. I just want to ask like, uh, treatment. So did you do a, a, an, an inpatient program? Yes. Um, so I initially signed up for when I got there, uh, they asked how long I wanted to stay. And of course I was still panicking about trying to keep my job. So I told them 30 days, that's it. It was 30, 60 or 90. And I ended up extending. I was there for 55 days and it was a, a really great facility. I'm, I'm insanely grateful for everyone there, but yeah, it was, it was a game changer. Were there any moments in that just quickly? Were there any like highlight moments through treatment? I mean, every once in a while there's these like, it might just be like a, a statement or a lesson or something that can kind of create a shift internally. I mean, was there any specific thing or just in general that that stood out to you about treatment that kind of helped make a shift for you? So I think um, progressively, as far as there's two sides of that kind of just self function in life and then actual recovery. So on the recovery side, it was a lot more progressive. You know, we would cover, you know, we had two, two classes a day, about three hours each um, that were each subject based. And, you know, there were things like loss in, um, loss in addiction, you know, DBT treatment, um, CBT treatment, like a lot of mental health focus in there, which I really appreciated assertiveness, even like life skills and just basic human functioning. And uh, a lot of what really stuck out to me was was things that focused on core beliefs, because a lot of that really shaped how I got to where I was. And so that part was more progressive, I think. And they would do karaoke on uh, (laughs) Saturday nights. One of the guys uh, that worked there had, you know, like uh, a PR, not a PR, but um, a P, like a PA, big speaker. Yeah, yeah, he had a whole system. He did that on the side. Um, I think he ran karaoke as a, a second job, but um, he would set it all up for us in the clubhouse on Saturday nights. And I actually did sober karaoke for the first time in my life. I sang oh. two songs. I did one week by Bare Naked Ladies because uh, that's a, that's a good one you can do without being able to sing. Solid, uh, and then just. Just to be goofy, I finished the night off with uh, Wannabe by the Spice Girls. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just kind of a confidence booster for me of like, hey, you know, you can function and have fun and engage with people and do uncomfortable things. So that was my first experience with that out since getting sober. So that was a big moment for me, bigger than probably just karaoke. That's that's cool, man. You know, there I've never... I've, Listen, I'm a karaoke guy, so hats off to you for doing that. I, I don't think I, yeah. Anyway, we don't need to get into that, but I, I love what you said. I think a big, a big part of what treatment is, is it's that immersion, that immersion into a sober life and just covering some of these like basic human needs and, and just kind of addressing like, Hey, here's some, some things that maybe we take for granted. And we're going to talk about how how we can strengthen these areas of your life. And then we're going to show you how you, how you can have some fun. And that's, I think that's amazing that they, that the, the facility you went to did things like that. And just things like sober karaoke or like some of the stuff we do at like retreats and meetups, 
Um, you know, and I know there's certain AA, there's, there's other recovery organizations that do different things more than just let's sit around and talk about the sad shit that we did in our lives, but like, let's go for hikes. Let's go for, you know, let's do art projects together. Let's, I mean, let's have a movie night, like doing those simple life things and having fun with them shows us that, that we can have fun in a life, you know, in a life without alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Isolation and connection, I think, is my biggest challenge. You know, I was literally non-functional for years outside of alcohol. And to be able to do all that in a, a, you know, a safe place um, with other people who understood while I was developing, even being able to interact with other human beings, um, it was huge. You know, not everybody needs to go to treatment. I did. I was too far gone. I was completely immersed. uh, And that was huge. That immersion was huge for me. I'm glad that it found its way to you. And it sounds like you had a great experience there. So you did 50, 55 days. He said, let's briefly, we got a couple minutes. We got to get to the rapid fire round. But before that, I just want to hear in the last rapidly approaching eight months, it's coming up quick, but in the last eight months or so, what has, what does life look like for you, Jeffrey? What, what are some cool things that you've, that you've seen play out in the last eight months that maybe you didn't expect? You know, just the, I mean, the biggest thing is just feeling alive and feeling normal and, and, you know, being able to go to, to work and take pride in my job and, you know, heal some of the scars um, and the relationships that I did that were so damaged uh, and just go, you know, make, making friends and being dropped. I can drive now, you know. I got a Walmart six times a week, even whether or not I need something. It's insane. And it just just this bright awakening to being being able to accept and be happy being alive. Yeah, I wish I had a more a detailed or eloquent way to put it. But just living is possible for me now. And it's it's huge. I think that's really cool. And I think there's a couple of things you said there that they're eloquent enough for me. For what that's worth healing the scars repairing some of those relationships i think that's beautiful and then just living life being able to live life those simple things like being able to do a walmart run just for shits and giggles just to just to go see i don't know see what see what they got going on just to be able to like hang out and just do stuff that's that's enough because we weren't doing that before we were holed up in our room in our apartment, in our house, whatever, just stuck in this shitty, shitty cycle. And to be able to get out there and do things, I think that's that's beautiful. And that's that's enough. Nice job, brother. Proud of you. Thank you. Yeah, that's enough. I think kind of summarizes it all for me. You know, just life is enough now. It never was before. That's why I drank. But yeah, I don't know. Good job, dude. Well, with that. Believe it or not, we are at our rapid fire section. Cue awesome rapid fire music. I was intimidated by this part. <laughs> We're going to get through this together, my dude, in 30 to 60 seconds. Jeffrey, are you ready? I think so. All right. What was your biggest fear as you thought about quitting drinking? Uh, I think failure. I, I think just the fear that I wasn't ever going to be able to escape it and into a real happy life. Yeah, you're not alone there. 
Uh, two, what is a positive that you did not expect in your life without alcohol? Honestly, the just the level of support. I think, you know, the whole, all the conversations, I'm not drinking, why don't you drink? Like, none of that. The, uh, the level of support that I've gotten from family, from friends, from strangers is overwhelming. And it's, I did not expect that at all. Very cool. What is your go-to alcohol-free drink? You know, it varies. Um, it goes in stages. Um, and right now it is um, Sunny D Orange Peach. Sunny D. I haven't had that in a minute and it is going on my list. Uh, what is your plan on sobriety moving forward? Growth and connection, I think, is my biggest thing right now. Um, that's what I was lacking for so long. And just continuing to find new activities, find new people. You know, that's what keeps me sober, whether it's hopping on a Zoom meeting, whether it's a Marco Polo chat, whether it's going to meet somebody at the library, just stay, stay connected. Right on. Uh, what is your favorite resource in recovery? This can be a book, a mobile app, a meeting. I know a lot of people go this route, but Cafe RE. Um, Cafe RE is, you know, the Recovery Elevator podcast is what kicked off my, it took me a couple years, but it's what kicked off my recovery journey. Um, and the online community is my main source of connection. Um, the early morning meetings are, uh, as we talked about um, before we started, are a huge part of my day and where a lot of my connections have come from. Um, so Cafe RE is, is definitely my favorite amen not a sales pitch but we will take it <laughs> and i think the take home from that is it's it's connection and that's i mean yes you and you and i are both doing that that's i mean that's a community that works for us so uh, i love it dude and last jeffrey but certainly not least what is your favorite you might need to ditch the booze if line you might need to ditch the booze if your local liquor store get, frequently gives you your beer for free in exchange for menial maintenance tasks. There might be a reason to take a look at it. Man, I used to do, I do like some photography just like for fun and stuff on the side. And I used to, that's when I first started taking pictures of people besides my family. That's how I used to do it. I was like, yeah, give me a case of Miller Lite. I'll take your family pictures. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is a bartering world, but yeah, we may want to take a look. Jeffrey, I'm really, really glad that we, that we did this today. And again, as, as you approach eight months, uh, uh, early congratulations by the time this airs, I think you'll have that. Uh, and I just want to say, I'm really proud of you and I appreciate you coming on, uh, and sharing your story today, brother. I, I think you're going to help a lot of people. Yeah. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, uh, I know this was definitely a big help for me. That's so. Uh... I appreciate you. All right, my dude. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Jeffrey, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. I also want to give a shout out to Jeffrey's family. One of the things that stuck out to me about our conversation was them finding a place to take care of his animals while he was getting some help. What a blessing to Jeffrey to know that his pets were being cared for. Many of us have put off getting a higher level of care because of barriers like this. I remember when my wife and I were working through our past at the beginning of my sobriety, we knew that we needed help, but the idea of balancing work, our kids' schedules, all the extras that life throws at you, plus counseling, was incredibly daunting. I had the same fears when I started outpatient treatment. 
The good news is that there are a ton of resources out there. If you're in a situation and you just don't think it's possible, I want to encourage you to get creative and find a way. Not everyone needs to go to a treatment center, but it can be a huge help to jumpstart your sobriety. Whether it's treatment, finding time to attend a support group, meetings, or some other form of recovery community, look for ways that you can participate. If you need some assistance, look for advocacy groups or find a social program in your area that may know of resources available locally. There are so many ways that we can enter the arena of recovery. Don't let that addictive voice tell you that it's hopeless because it's not. I felt that way for a long time, but when I finally surrendered and told my doctor that I needed help, I was amazed at how fast people came together to help me get the care that I needed to be successful. You can do this and you are worth it. Recovery Elevator, the only way out is through. I love you guys. Why you're doing this and then go get it. <laughs>